If you have your Bibles, you can take them, but we're going to look at a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in just a moment. We have been in a sermon series called God Is, and so we have talked about the main attributes, some of the main attributes of God. Uh, We've talked about how God is all-powerful, He's all-knowing, He's ever-present. We've talked about how God is loving, God is self-sufficient, and God is good, and we have defined each one of those for you. Uh, Today is part six, God is holy. And if you have your bulletins, there's a little bulletin insert that you can grab and fill in, jot down some notes, some thoughts. Um, When when I was growing up, uh, when I was really, really young, my parents belonged to what was called the Pentecostal Holiness Church. Have any of y'all ever heard of the Pentecostal Holiness Church, PH Church? Okay, that's what my parents grew up in. My grandfather was a deacon in a PH church in Kingston, Oklahoma, pretty much my entire life. Um, apparently, they didn't have uh, you know rules about how often you could serve. So once you're deacon, they just kind of keep you there and you serve forever. Um, so Will would have loved that. Um, <laughs> there's no retiring. You retire when you die. Okay, uh, from the board. But uh, in terms of doctrinal beliefs, the group is, is pretty similar to the Assemblies of God. There are a few variances on a couple of things. But one of the marks of those from a holiness background was uh, a lot of times their outward appearance. Um, I, I would assume there were expectations for the men, but what anybody ever talked about was the expectations for the ladies, and uh, I don't I don't think the ladies enjoyed the expectations uh, nearly as much um, because the women uh, some women had very long hair and some women never cut their hair. Uh, they believed the scripture that says that the hair is a woman's glory and crown, and so when they cut their hair, they were cutting off their glory or something. I'm not sure, uh, but some groups they wouldn't allow them to wear jewelry or makeup. And uh, they couldn't wear slacks either. Now, for those of you under the age of 40, you probably didn't know that, that for a long time in church, women could not wear slacks because of how they interpreted Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, which says that a woman cannot wear a man's clothing, and slacks were considered men's clothing. So you couldn't wear slacks. Um. For some groups, holiness was overemphasized as an external thing. And, uh, and, and it really didn't, I mean, that's really what got all the press, was the, the external expectations as opposed to the internal expectations of what holiness is really about. Now, Unfortunately, for some people growing up in churches like that, they thought that's what holiness is. And you can always tell if you go into, if you're driving through a small town and you hit the Walmart, you can always identify those who are from a holiness background. Mennonite, Quaker, um, UPC, PH, a lot of them have very long dresses and long hair. The women do, not the men. That would be weird. But um, but you know, so you can sometimes identify these people because in your mind, that's what holiness was. It was an external thing. It's about what you wore. And it was, and, and so for some reason, 
when you talk about holiness in a lot of ways, it was more about, it seemed like God cared more about a person's outward uh, appearance than, and their clothing choices than he did the condition of their heart. And so when we hear the word holy in our culture, in church, in Christianity, and in the Bible, we sometimes wonder what does that even mean to be holy? The third member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath day was called holy to God. The place where Moses stood before the burning bush was called holy ground. Gathering for the Passover was called a holy assembly. Israel was called a holy nation. God told them to build a tabernacle where they could offer sacrifices, and it had to have a holy place and then a most holy place or holy of holies. The priests had to wear holy garments. You get the idea, but what does all this mean? What does it mean for something to be holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? What does it mean for, uh, what does holiness mean for us? Well, first, let's define the word. So in your, if you want to take your, your fill-in-the-blank sheet, number one, being holy means to set apart for special use, distinct different. Being holy means to be set apart for special use. So when we read these instances in the Bible of what the word holy uh, comes up, we see that God was setting apart a specific day of the week, a specific day on the calendar, a specific place on the map, a specific people group for his special use. There was nothing inherently holy about that day, that place, or that people group. But once God separated it as distinct and holy, that's how he viewed it, holy. The Sabbath was sacred and set apart. You can do work six days a week, but on the Sabbath, you are to rest. Passover, Israel, the burning bush, none of them were holy until God called them holy. But once God set them apart for special use, he considered them holy. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, if you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he talked about being a worker for God that God approves of. There's no point in working for the Lord if God does not put his stamp of approval on you. And, and to help Timothy understand this concept, he used an analogy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 through 21. And this says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, as we read the Bible, we see, especially in the Old Testament, the repetitive, unholy, and dishonorable practices of Israel, his holy nation. And they repeatedly engage in unholy and detestable behavior. Their idolatry, their wicked practices were not overlooked by God. He punished them.
because of his sin, because of their sin. Uh, He had put his stamp of approval on them, and so because of that, he required them to live up to a higher standard of conduct, his standard of conduct, something God sets aside as holy to him, has special distinction and privilege, but it also comes with an obligation to live a holy life. One author put it this way. They said, the biblical concept of holiness carries with it a sense of belonging to God, much like a mother might claim these children are mine. This is an important distinction because when we hear a call to holiness, we often think of all the things in our house that need to go. You might have already written down on your piece of paper in your notes section and passed it over to your spouse. Pastor's talking about holiness. Need to throw away all our rated R movies. No, your romance novels need to go. A call to holiness shouldn't be a periodic reminder of things that you need to get rid of. It is a reminder that you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are already set apart and expected to behave in a holy and righteous manner. When we remember that God has put his Holy Spirit in our hearts, that our names are engraved upon his hand, our concerns are ever before him, then a message about holiness should give us more excitement than shame. Yes, there are unholy things that we allow into our lives, and we need to let the Holy Spirit remind us of those things so that they do not become part of our identity. We need God to help us see any idols that we might have built in our hearts, in our minds, that take away worship from Him. Easiest way to do that is just keep a calendar. Keep a log of what you spend your time on. What you do from 8 to 9 a.m., from 9 to 10 a.m., etc., etc. Keep a log of what you do, and you'll see where your time is spent. When you get an opportunity, this is going to hurt for a second. I'm sorry. It's going to sting. When you get an opportunity to do something non-work related, you get off work and and you get to sit down on the couch for the first time, What is the first thing you grab? I didn't hear a Bible. I I heard remote. I heard phone. You might have said Bible, and you are uber spiritual. And good for you, because I didn't hear one of you say it. We grab, we, we go to hold hands with our idol. We go to hold hands with what's precious and important to us. Okay? Woo! I didn't think this sermon was going to get a lot of amens. We need to, when the Holy Spirit begins to push buttons, and He begins to reveal, when He begins to reveal things in our life that are taking attention and affection away from the Lord. We need to respond to those because what I hear when I'm talking to people and and I'm hearing them and 
most people want a deeper relationship with the Lord. They want to grow. They want to have a deeper communion. They want God to use them in their spiritual gifts. They want to be able to prophesy. They want to be able to lay hands on the sick and that person recovers. I mean, can you just imagine God using you in a powerful way and all of these gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit through healing and words of wisdom and words of knowledge? And we want that, but we're not willing to do what is required to have that. We're not willing to put in the time, the work that it takes to cultivate that relationship with the Lord. I could go on. I don't think y'all want me to. There are are pastors out there who they, they teach that there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. They teach that everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred. Everything is holy. To that I have three responses. Number one, read your Bible. Because you cannot justify that understanding in the Old or the New Testaments. Number two, that concept that everything is spiritual and sacred and holy is called pantheism. And it is where everything, even unholy, even evil things, are part of an all-encompassing, eminent God. That God is in the tree. And when you worship God, you could worship the tree. Thank you, tree, for giving me shelter. Thank you, grapes, for giving me grape juice. Thank you, uh, couch, for letting me sit on you. No. No. That is pantheism. That is dumb. It's just dumb. Everything is not sacred and spiritual and, and holy. Uh, and, and, number through, and number three, look around you. Does it seem like everything in our world is sacred? Does it seem like everything is holy to the most holy God? If you think that people are mostly good, 98% good, and occasionally do bad things, because there, there are people, you may believe that, people are mostly good. People are, are, people are not born good. All right? They're not born uh, with uh, the, the spirit of, the, they're, not, they're not born saved, set free, delivered. They're not. If you don't, if you forgot that or you think that, have a baby. And you'll see that you have just brought the most selfish thing in the world into your house. Um, they don't care about what you're doing. They don't care that you just, I've had a long day and I just sat down and I just want to get caught up on dancing with the stars or the latest bachelor drama or this or that, you know. Just, you know, change your own diaper. No, they are selfish. They're born that way. They come out screaming for attention and affection and you have to stop everything you're doing to give it to them. If you think that people are 98% good and occasionally do bad things, I would encourage you to speak to a police officer. They'll tell you stories of how wicked and evil people can be. And then pray for them. Because 
they see humanity at its worst. And then they go home to their families. Apart from God, no one is righteous. Not even one. That's what Paul wrote in Romans. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one is holy. No one is pure. No one is sacred without the presence and the help of a most holy God. God created the heavens and the earth, and he is distinct from it. Therefore, he is holy. He took unholy and unrighteous people, and he set them apart for his special use, thus making them holy to him. We need to remember our obligation to the God who saved us from from our sins the next time we're tempted to engage in unholy activity. Why? Number two, because God identified himself as holy. God identified himself as holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, and again later on in Revelation, but in Isaiah 6 we read about Isaiah's incredible vision of God in heaven. Isaiah saw what's called seraphim. These are angels, unique angelic beings that for all eternity they call out to each other saying, Isaiah 6 verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in Scripture, if something is really important, they'll say it twice. You've seen this plenty of times. Jesus often said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly. In Hebrew, it would be, Amen, amen, so be it, so be it. Um, and so they would, Jesus would say that twice, and that's the Jewish equivalent to saying, Hey, 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 listen up, listen up. To say something three times meant that you need to absolutely understand what is being communicated because it is one of the most important things ever. And what we see in Scripture is not a single time does the Bible say, loving, loving, loving is the Lord of hosts. It doesn't say self-sufficient, self-sufficient, self-sufficient. Those are all true. It doesn't say gracious, gracious, gracious is the Lord. No, it says holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When the angel declared the holiness of God in this passage, the foundations of the temple shook at the declaration of his holiness. Not of his might, not of his power, not of his creative ability, but At his holiness, the foundations of the temple shook. So what was Isaiah's response in this moment of witnessing the absolute holiness of God? Isaiah 6 verse 5, it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The angel took a burning coal from the altar, touched Isaiah's lips with it, and declared to him, your guilt 
is taken away and your sin is atoned for. How? How could the angel take away Isaiah's guilt with a burning coal? Because whatever touches something that God has made holy becomes holy. Whatever touches something that God has made holy becomes holy. God is completely, he is utterly holy. So when he touches something, it becomes holy unto God. When he declares something is holy, it is holy. And when something unholy touches something that is holy, it doesn't make the holy thing unholy. It makes the unholy thing holy. There's a lot of holies and unholies, but I hope you stay with me. God was giving, I'll give you some examples. God was giving instruction to Israel about how to set things apart, uh, how, to, how to set apart the priests to work in his presence. And he told them in Exodus chapter 29, verses 35 through 37, he says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you and, and shall anoint it to consecrate it or to set it apart. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy, whatever touches the altar shall become holy. When it is set apart for God for his special use, if something unholy touches something that is holy, that unholy thing becomes holy. It does not defile what God has declared as holy. In Exodus chapter 30, God instructed them on making anointing oil and incense that would serve as a pleasing aroma in his presence. He said in Exodus chapter 30, verses 25 through 29, And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the, what did I, what did I, what did we put there? And, all, and it's utensils. Oh, okay, sorry. I'll, the table, I, mis, I mistyped it in here. And the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become Holy. All right, he's already said it twice in two chapters. You hopefully can get it. Whatever touches something that is holy becomes holy. God is holy. We cannot defile him. And when he, because he's holy, he, he declared this special mixture of anointing oil, spices and, and stuff, he declared it as holy. The priests were commanded to take this oil and anoint all of the things in the tabernacle. Once they anointed these things with the holy anointing oil, these things became holy. Then anything that touched these items in the tabernacle also became holy. You 
could not defile what God had made holy. So when we fast forward in time, and the woman with the issue of blood, who had been unclean and unholy for 12 years, spent everything she had. The doctors, the physicians could not help her. They could not stop the hemorrhaging that she dealt with. For 12 years, she was an outsider. For 12 years, she was not allowed to go to the tabernacle or the temple and offer sacrifices for her sin. For 12 years, she could not even stay in the house with her family because she was unclean. For 12 years, she could not attend Yom Kippur uh, ceremonies and have her sins forgiven. For 12 years, she was not able to participate in Passover and eat the unleavened bread with her family. For 12 years, she was excommunicated spiritually, religiously, physically, emotionally for 12 years. And when she reached out and she touched Jesus, Jesus did not become unclean. What was unclean became clean. The woman was healed. Because when God makes something holy, anything that touches it becomes holy. This is why Jesus broke all the rules. He broke rules, not, not God's laws, but he broke the cultural rules. And when he saw a leper, everybody else cover their face. Back up, don't touch me. Don't touch me. What did Jesus do? He reached out and he touched him. Because he was holy to the Lord. And when something holy touches something that's unholy, that which is unholy becomes holy and clean. Now, this is why God guards his holiness. His holiness is not something that he takes lightly or allows us to take lightly. This is why on two separate occasions, priests of God died in God's presence when they treated God's holy things with contempt. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were priests of the Lord. They served in God's tabernacle. They, they had a special relationship with God. They got to go into the holy place closer than anyone else was able to go into. And in fact, if you read this story, as, as, uh, as Israel is preparing before they're going into the promised land, Nadab and Abihu, Moses and Aaron and some of the elders, they got to actually have dinner with God on the mountain. Exodus 24. They got to have dinner with God on the mountain. They enjoyed special access to God's holy presence, but they took it for granted. It says in Leviticus 10:1. Now Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They offered fire 
to God, but it was unauthorized. It was, uh, some translations call it strange, fire, perverse. This word unauthorized or strange, it gives the concept that either they used things that God had not approved of in worship to him, thus bringing something whole, uh, something common, something unholy into God's holy presence, or they had their hearts had been turned aside from worshiping him, and they were actually uh, offering incense to a foreign god. We don't know which is the case. All we know is that God looks at the heart. And so where Nadab and Abihu worked is what some Jewish rabbis called the zone of the holy, adding that it is where the divine presence takes up its headquarters. And as one rabbi said, it is intrinsically dangerous. Intrinsically dangerous. There was no margin for error for unholy conduct in God's holy presence. Unfortunately, the wrath of God was a lesson that was not learned by Eli's sons as well. If you fast forward and looking in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli is the high priest at the time. He's not a good high priest. He's not a good dad. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and we're introduced uh, to them in 1 Samuel 2. The Bible calls them worthless men. The Bible calls them worthless men. Now, that's important to understand because the Bible tells stories of its characters, and it tells you, for instance, when King David kills Goliath, when King David does all these good things, and it tells you the story when King David did some not-so-good things. And even in that, the Bible, God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. We see Noah building the ark and obeying God. Then we see Noah when he's drunk and has a little inappropriate situation later on. So we see the Bible, the, the Bible characters in their best and sometimes in their worst. There was apparently nothing redeemable about these two because the Bible calls them worthless men that did not even know the Lord. In Hebrew, it means they were, quote, good for nothing. You good for nothing. Worthless. They were unprofitable. They were wicked men. And these were the ones serving God in his holy presence. They treated God's sacrifices with contempt. They would take the best pieces of meat for themselves before it could be offered to the Lord. And if a person came to offer a sacrifice, uh, they would say, hey, give that to the priest before it's burned up. And if the, if the person said, no, this belongs to the Lord, they would, say, uh, they would say they wouldn't allow him to come back. Give that to the priest. It's theirs, and they're going to take it right now. You're not going to burn it up. They don't want the burnt ends. They want the moist middle brisket. They would also uh, commit adultery with the women who would come to serve at the tabernacle. So you can understand, the Bible says these are worthless men. This is wicked conduct committed by men who stood in the presence of God on a daily basis and stood there on behalf of the very people they were sinning against. 
God declared ruin for Eli's family. And that both Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. As God says in Leviticus 10.3, I will be treated as holy by those who approach me. And before all the people, I will be honored. When we come before God, we need to remember his holiness and not treat him or his presence with contempt. Thus, number three, God commands us to be holy as well. Oh, pastor, I was hoping you weren't going to say that. God commands us to be holy as well. Because we serve a holy God, he expects his people to be a holy people. He repeatedly punished Israel for their unrighteous and unholy behavior. He exiled them. He kicked them out of their own country, the country he gave them, the promised land. He he drove all of the inhabitants of the land out and then gave them the land. But they repeatedly broke covenant with him. They engaged in unholy behavior. They rejected, uh, they rejected God, and so he rejected their worship because they had littered Israel. They had littered the promised land with pagan altars and places of worship to demons and false gods that weren't even really gods at all. Israel thought that because God himself had carved her borders and given the land to him, He would just overlook their sin and their wickedness, that they could come back to him at any time. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a teenager or in your 20s and you want to live the way you want to live and you think, I'll just, I'll get saved when I'm old. When I'm I'm 40, 50, 60, et cetera, when I'm older, I'm 40, I'm 44. So, you know, look, it's just a fact of life, okay? But when I get older, fine. When I get older, I'll deal with it. On my deathbed, I'll make things right. Will you? There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. And so that's what they thought. We'll just live the way we want to live, and then we'll still offer the sacrifices. We'll still do his, his holy convocations and all this stuff. And God was so angry at them. He said, I reject your worship. I reject your sacrifices. I detest your celebrations, because your heart is so far from me. For decades, the prophets warned Israel and its leaders of God's desire for her to repent and avoid his judgment. What did they do? They killed the prophets to stop God's word. For decades, prophets have been warning this nation that she will share the same fate as Israel. Our nation was founded by Christians seeking freedom to worship God, and it is now littered with strip clubs and abortion clinics and altars of entertainment where 60,000 to 100,000 people can gather and worship athletes in man-made, as man-made idols instead of worshiping the true and living God. My heart, breaks for this country. It breaks for the people who do not know Jesus as their Savior. It breaks because of the version of Christianity that the American church has put forth. 
that if we, that we have to entertain people. Oh, this church, man, their pastor wears skinny jeans. This church, they've got fog and lasers. This church, man, their worship team is so good. They're, they're all professional musicians. Yeah, uh, one of the guys has his own worship album. This church has this and this and this. And people talk about all of these things. And, and it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It is, in my opinion, it's the pastor's. It is, it is the responsibility of the pastors to keep church what it should be about. It's about that. It is about the cross of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not enough of a draw, then skinny jeans, fog and lasers, and espresso in the lobby will not. I, I am so burdened for the church in America because we have generations of people that come to church and they don't even know what the message is. Every single thing we do communicates. So what I say for 30 to 40 minutes or so you know, most people think that is the primary communication, and that is, that is a big chunk. But our sign communicates. The friendliness of our greeters and our ushers communicate. You communicate to people. And my heart breaks because what we communicate isn't always what should be communicated. Jesus Christ is the living Son of God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He will return. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet how much of what we do in American Christianity is so convoluted that when, when, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and uh, somebody would say, hey, what religion are you? And I would say, well, I'm a Christian. And they said, well, what, do you, what church do you go to? And I'm like, a Christian church? What? I don't understand the question. Like, well, like what flavor? Like it's Baskin Robbins, you know? Uh, what fl- do y'all know what Baskin? Some of y'all don't know what Baskin Robbins is. Thirty-two flavors. It was amazing. It's life-changing. Um, and so uh, I would say, well, we're assemblies of God. What do you think the next question was? What's assemblies of God? And I didn't know how to say it, so I said, we're like Baptists with drums, Because back then, the Baptist church in town didn't have a drum set. And they're like, well, what do you believe? Now, there's a good opportunity to preach the gospel. I'm 16, 17 years old, still kind of figuring all out. So I said, well, we don't drink, we don't smoke, and we don't have sex outside of marriage. And do you know what the person said to me? That sounds awful. I had a golden opportunity to preach the gospel. We believe that there is one God in three persons. We believe that Jesus Christ came into this world. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. That death could not hold him. We believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to preach the gospel into all the world. And we're commanded to do that. 
That would have been such a better sales pitch than to say all the fun things that we can't do. They're not really that fun. But my heart breaks for this country and it breaks for the church in America because we have created a version of Christianity that is not biblical. It's not biblical. So much so that we have to sit around and correct error that you're going to read. It's written in books that you're going to pick up at every Christian bookstore. You're going to listen to error in some of the worship songs on KSBJ. Because it, it is written, unfortunately, by people who do not have a theological background. They're good songwriters. They're good singers. They're good on a guitar. But they don't have any theology background. We even have pastors in really big churches that have not been to Bible college a day in their life. They don't have a degree in theology or the Bible. And how could you expect them to rightly divide the word of truth and to teach you what the word of God says when they don't even know how to do it? American Christianity is in a crisis. And the... While we play games, lives are being lost. While we play games, we're losing generations. We're losing these kids. We're losing our teenagers. We're losing our college students. Because we've sold them a bill of goods that will not actually save them. It will not give them the gospel. They think they're, they're confused, and rightly so. My heart breaks for the millions of children that are murdered by abortion, the millions of children that are neglected in the foster care system, never to know a family's love. My heart breaks for the dead and lifeless churches that are meant to be lighthouses to their community. But they're nothing but, but an altar to the God of entertainment and comfort. Now, I'm not old enough to remember this. I only know the stories from my father and my grandfather. But back in the day, they used to have tent revival meetings in Texas in the summer. And they didn't stick a window unit in a hole in the tent. They just opened it up and prayed for the Holy Spirit to blow through, to give a breeze or something. But people came because God was working. Today, if we decided to have church on July, in, in July, we decided to open the windows but turn off the AC, would you come? We have made church to be something that requires, it, it, we, we need comfort. Right temperature. It's a little chilly in here, Pastor. It's a little hot in here, Pastor. These we need to get the better cushions, you know, with these these chairs. We need memory foam. That church across the street is memory foam. It remembers the divots. And give a whole new meaning to that's my pew, literally. I mean it it's it is my, the memory foam of me. This is not in my notes. I'm sorry. But my heart breaks over my own sin, over the sin of my family, of my friends, 
my fellow pastors, some of whom are trying to live a godly and holy life and some of whom aren't trying at all. Unless you think that holiness is not a serious issue with God, the word holy is used over 600 times in the Bible. And it almost, without exception, refers to his holiness, not ours. Six, over 600 times. That is more than the references of God being just, merciful, and gracious combined. Out of all of God's attributes, only God's love is referred to as much as his holiness is. Peter wrote a letter in 1 Peter. It was a letter to churches in five different regions, and he gave them some much-needed New Testament perspective on this issue. This is what he wrote, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Only God can enable us to be holy in this fallen and fleshly body. How does he do it? The same way Jesus did it with the woman who had the issue of blood. When we reach out in faith and believe that only he can heal us, only he can save us from our unworthiness, our uncleanness, our unholiness, our unrighteousness, it is then we finally touch what is holy and become holy ourselves. God is holy and he requires those who approach him to do so in holiness. I'll give you one, one final example um, because it's a good New Testament example. As you remember the story in the book of Acts, uh, I believe Philip, he sold some property and he, he decided he was going to donate all of the money to the church. 100% of what he sold, he was going to donate it to help preach the gospel. He brings it to the uh, elders of the church, lays it at their feet and says, use this, let's preach the gospel. Amen. Praise the Lord. So this husband and wife couple, they're like, ooh, we like, we like how, you know, they honored Philip and we like how they encouraged him and thanked him. We, we like to be thanked. We like that as well. So they went and they sold some property that they owned, right? It was all theirs. They could do whatever they wanted to with it. And they decided to give a portion of it to the uh to Peter and the leaders of the church, um, but to say that what they were giving was all the money they had gotten, right? So they go and they lay this at the feet of the elders, and they're like, you're welcome, you're welcome. We did this for you. This is all of it. Is this all of it? Yes, this is all of it, 100%. But it wasn't 100%. And we don't know if it was 90% or 50% or just 10%. We don't know. But all we know is they lied in their giving. We're going to take up the offering in just a few minutes. I just want to remind you. They lied in their giving. Again, Peter tells them, look, it was all yours. 
You could do whatever you wanted to with it. You could give 10% to the Lord and keep 90% for yourself. That was perfectly fine. But you lied. You gave this percentage and you said that you were giving it all. But it's not all. That's a, a good example of God's holy expectation in everything. Not just coming to church, not just in our prayer or devotional life, not just in our conduct, but even our giving. God expects holiness in every single thing that we do. When If he is holy and he has that expectation that we will behave ourselves holy also. Holiness in our minds, holiness in our actions, holiness in our attitudes. It's a constant battle because of the sinful nature we have, but it is required for those who call themselves children of God. Worship team, come up. Would you stand with me this morning? I'll apologize in advance if you've heard me tell the story, but it fits. When I was a Bible college student at Southwestern, um, we had to tell them what church we were attending. Uh, we had to specifically, um, you know, sign up and say, I'm going to Evangel Assembly of God or whatever. And so, um, you know, I, I, I did that. I've picked a church that I was going to attend that semester and plug into, and they didn't want you church hopping. Um, and so, so I, uh, I, I, uh, but I'm a preacher's kid, so I'm a little bit rebellious. Okay. I decided that, um, I wanted to visit a church that was very different from the Pentecostal background I'd had. I'd never been to another church. I mean, I said we're Baptists with drums, but to be fair, I had never even been to a Baptist church at that point. I didn't know. So one Sunday I decided to visit Christ the King Lutheran Church in Waxahachie, Texas. People greeted me very warmly. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Lutheran. They're not Pentecostal. At all. All right, so this was about as far different within Christianity as I could get from what I had grew, grown up in. People greeted me very warmly. Um, the worship was all hymns, and, and some of the songs they sang predated the hymns of glorious praise. Okay, these were uh, Martin Luther wrote them himself. Actually, I'm positive because it's Lutheran. And so, yeah, anyway, so the format, it was filled with liturgy. It was uh, the sermon was intelligent. And as I was sitting there and, and, and being a part of this service. There were some people dozing off in the pews. There were children fidgeting. Teenagers doing what teenagers do. They were passing notes. And they faked interest in the service. But as I sat on that pew, I was, I had a renewed sense of awe and wonder. All my life, I had attended churches that felt closer to a three-ring circus than the throne room of God. And I was overwhelmed, sitting in that service, sitting in that church, I was overwhelmed by God's holiness there in the Lutheran Church that does not embrace the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. I felt God's holiness stronger there than I had ever felt it in a Pentecostal service. It made 
such a profound impact on me that I tell the story 25 years later. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Pentecostal churches and being excited about being in God's presence. But what that church taught me is this. Familiarity of God's presence can extinguish our reverence for God's holiness. I'll say it again. Familiarity of God's presence can extinguish our reverence for His holiness. We can be so used to being in God's presence that we offer worship with insincere hearts. You know, we need uh, the, the pastor and team to get our heart rate up. You know, gotta, that first song, got to be at least 120 beats a minute. Got to, you know, get people's blood pressure and get their heart rates going. And it's got to feel like an aerobic exercise to come into worship. Got to get people excited. Come on, let's get excited. Sometimes worship leaders, they say, how are y'all feeling? I would just love for one of them to do, say this. When he says, how y'all feeling, though, it doesn't matter how you're feeling. The God we serve is holy and he's worthy of our praise. Now people might get up and walk out at that point. But we can be so accustomed to just walking in and saying, okay, I've had a rough week, Pastor. You've got to prop me up. You've got you to motivate me. You've got to tell me why I should worship. And, and when we come into God's presence and offer insincere worship, we can essentially offer unauthorized fire, dishonest worship to God. It's only by His grace that we are not consumed. It's only by His grace. Ananias and Sapphira, all they were doing was putting in their tithe envelope. But God considered that a holy act. And they didn't walk out of church alive that day. I don't mean to scare you. But I'm just saying, we need to be holy in everything that we do because God requires it of us. Now, you may not leave service shouting the roof off of this place, but my hope is that you leave today having a renewed sense of awe and wonder at the holiness of our God and what He expects from you every single day. Every single day. We're going to worship the Lord this morning, and then I'll close this in prayer. You know, the world will see how great our God is when they see us live our lives in such a way that honors Him. When we live our lives in such a way that, that backs up what we believe. The problem is that we have a lot of Christians who say they believe it, but then they don't live it. And so when the world looks at us, they don't see a distinction. They don't see any difference. The Bible tells us, do not be conformed to this world. It says, come out from among them and be ye separate. The rules and regulations for Israel in the Old Testament were to make a people distinct, visually distinct, spiritually distinct, so that when someone whom God had been working on and, and tugging on their hearts, 
when they would see a fellow, when they would see a Jewish person, they would say, tell me about your God. They would be recognizable because of the way they dress, the way they behave. And we live our lives in such a way in a lot of, a lot of times where people wouldn't know the distinction. People wouldn't even know if we're a Christian. Because we talk like the world, we act like the world, we do everything the world does, but we said a prayer and we're going to heaven. Jesus is saying to the church, come out from among them. Be separate. Be separate. Holiness is not something to be afraid of. It is one of the preeminent characteristics of our God. I would rather err on the side of holiness than to err on the side of unholiness. I'd rather err on the side of offering God holy worship. I'd rather err on the side of holy conduct and holy living. And people might think, oh, he's just legalistic. Versus erring on the side of unholy conduct and the fire of God consume me because I approached a holy God in an an unholy way. We have been so afraid to be labeled legalistic that we're afraid to give guidance and direction to people on how to live a holy life. And I think that is one of the ways that we have strayed and erred. Yes, we don't want people to be legalistic. We're not holy. We're not obeying all these rules to be saved. We obey these rules. We adhere to this lifestyle of a holy conduct because we are saved. Because God has done something in us. And let me tell you, there was a time I went to a concert. And uh, it wasn't a Christian concert, but it wasn't like a satanic concert either, okay? So it was in the middle, all right? A, a, A musician that played good music. We really liked his music, whatever. So we go to this place, this concert. And the minute my wife and I walked in, we felt darkness. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can stay here. But we knew all of his songs. It was nothing objectionable. There were lots of love songs, you know. And so, you know, Angela and I, yay, you know. But in that place was this darkness. And I told Angela, I was like, I don't know if I can stay It just felt heavy. There was like a fog of darkness, evil, wickedness in that place. And I said, I cannot stay here. Now, you know, if the Lord had enabled me, I could have preached the gospel and cast out demons and, and, you know, dispelled the darkness, you know, and, and, and God's marvelous light could shine in the place. But in that moment, I just felt like we need to go. This is not going to be a place or an occasion where the Lord is glorified. And so we decided to leave. And we didn't say, y'all are going to hell as we walked out the door. We didn't do anything like that. You know, but we we just felt we need to separate ourselves from this. There's something in the atmosphere that is so wicked and unholy that two people who are set apart as holy unto God don't belong there. Does that make sense? 
We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in those instances. We may choose to go to unholy places, and we need to be sensitive to that, the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be set apart, distinct, different, holy unto Him. Don't let the world fool you into thinking that by engaging in, in holy behavior, you're being legalistic. Don't don't let the don't let the world don't let other Christians oh you're just being legal no I'm not I'm being holy unto the Lord you can do this if you choose to you can engage in this practice if you choose to but I'm not going to because I'm set apart for something God has His hand upon my life and I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to let unholy conduct rule my life I want to be distinct and different I want to be holy unto the Lord. I'd rather stand before God on Judgment Day and say, man, you erred on the side of holiness, high five, than for, for him to say, wow, I mean, you got here by the skin of your teeth, man. All the things, all the unholy things you let in your life, you, you eked in, or to not even be let in at all. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would help us. Our I hope that our desire, our heart, is to be set apart for you, to be holy in our hearts, in our actions. And and we're going to be in situations and, and we may need to go home and we may need to clean house. We may need to throw out some stuff that has been a snare, that is something that is been a temptation is something that we have allowed in our home and it is not uh, it is not enabling us to be stronger spiritually it is an idol it is worthless it is dragging us down Lord help us see those things that have become idols in our life and give us the willpower the courage to tear down every idol regardless of what it is because you have set us apart for your use, special use. And you will not share your glory with an idol. And if you won't share your glory with an idol, that means you won't share your glory with people who are engaged in idolatry. We want your spirit in a powerful way. We want you to move in this church, in this community. We want Friendship Church to be right at the center of that. We want you to do powerful things, lives restored, marriages healed, uh, salvation to the lost, the prodigals coming home. And we know that's only going to happen if we take our walk with you seriously. If we choose to be led by the Spirit. We love you, God. You are holy and righteous. Help us be holy because you're holy. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for those moments where we didn't behave in a holy way and help us to do better, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.